Carla King is an adventure travel journalist. She also runs some self-publishing boot camps to teach people how to get their own books published on their own. We're going to talk with Carla about her passion for motorcycles, and in particular, a trip that she did back in 1995 where she took a Ural motorcycle, a Russian Ural motorcycle, and rode it around the United States. Now, for those who don't know what a Russian Ural motorcycle is, or just a Ural motorcycle or Ural, It's a motorcycle that was designed back in the late 30s by BMW and somehow found its way into the hands of the Russians. Now, normally when somebody takes a motorcycle and starts manufacturing it, they make improvements year after year. Things change, body styles change, especially improvements, but not with the Ural. The Ural stayed exactly the same as it was in the late 30s, right up until, well, just a few years ago. And I'm not even sure if they've actually changed them for the Russian market, but certainly for the North American market, they've made some improvements to them. And the the motorcycle has changed somewhat. But the bike that Carla rode around the United States was that original version one, And, of course, with the old technology, it's problematic. It has all types of things that tend to break down and not be as reliable as our motorcycles are. But the unique thing about it, aside from its design and its look that it has, the classic look... It comes with a sidecar stock, and it drives both rear wheels. So in essence, you've got a two-wheel drive motorcycle. That will take you into a lot of rough terrain and get you out of a lot of places that you otherwise wouldn't. Carla starts her story at the age of 14 when she was in her parents' barn and spotted a motorcycle. And to Carla, that motorcycle was her escape. I was trying to escape from my, you know, 14-year-old hormonal self, I suppose. Of course, when you're that age, you think it's escaping from everyone around you. I did find peace. Um, I hadn't found that kind of peace. I always loved walking, and, and I was always a loner. But when I got on that motorcycle, it felt um, powerful or maybe empowering. I had grown up in the country, so I, I wasn't intimidated with mechanical problems. My dad was always dragging me out as a third hand, helping him with um, the things that we used to do on our sort of semi-farm. So it often broke down and I would uh, fix it or push it back. I'd rather fix it than push it back, wouldn't you? (laughs) Because it can be a long, long way (laughs) to push it back. I felt free. I felt, also I felt um, capable and uh, in charge. In Baja, I had a friend come visit and he gave our gang a little lesson on off-road riding. I've always felt a little skittish going downhill on dirt and gravel and sand. I mean, that is, I think, the hardest for everybody. (laughs) You know, it's always a learning process. There's always something else. You find that out when you have a near miss or you have to make an emergency stop. You're going, wow, you know, I got to hone my skills. And I remember I realized that a few years ago and I took an off-road class up in Sacramento. The MSF has uh, dirt bike classes with little 125s. And it was great. Um, <laughs> I unlearned a lot of things that I had learned starting at 14. I always put my weight on the foot peg in the direction that I was leaning, you know, if I was making a left curve, I would put my 
you know, weight on the left-hand side and really you should put it on your right peg, right? Distribute that weight and uh, fling your butt around and look toward your eventual destination, which is quite a nice metaphor (laughs) for life in general, isn't it? I'm really good at um, writing down instructions. And when I got to France, I, I was working there for Hewlett Packard uh, temporarily. And I always wanted to go back and I was doing motorcycling, but I was also mountain biking at the time. And uh, when I lived there, I was trying to find a little guidebook of some sort to show me what the best bicycling roads were in the area. You know, there's always one little guidebook and there wasn't one, not even in French. And um, I could speak French, so I wasn't um, limiting myself to English. I would explore and naturally just wrote down what I found, you know, I, (laughs) the roads that were good. I documented the roads that weren't good. I didn't, you know, and it was really technical writing, you know, go two and a half kilometers and turn left at the, the castle and go another half a kilometer and write at the World War II Fort Ruins, visit this little village and meet at this restaurant. And I self-published it because the uh, publishing companies, they said it was good. Several of them said, oh, it's really good, but it needs a bigger book. You need to document all of Southern France or something. And I said, nah. So I just did it myself and uh, I printed 500 copies I went back to France and I hand sold them to tourist offices, bicycle shops, English language bookstores, and, you know, sort of little tourist shops wherever I could. I went, actually, I rented a car and put them all in my trunk. And uh, I made enough money for two more trips to France. That was in 93. And from that trip, I went on to bicycle through West Africa which was amazing. Um, and I chose a bicycle and not a motorcycle because of the simple fact that they didn't have readily available gas where I wanted to go. <laughs> and so um, I got back into the bush and in very remote places on a bike. But in 1988, I had already taken my the trip that I describe in the first chapter of American Borders, the one where my husband and I planned a trip forever. And he never went, he never went, and we didn't take a vacation in four years. And I said, okay, I'm just going by myself. (laughs) And I did take a six-week motorcycling vacation in Europe, mostly France, and fell in love with solo long-distance traveling. Um, I had no idea that it would be so much fun and so satisfying. And also it showed me that what we all know, I think in the adventure motorcycling, that even if you're traveling solo, you're really never alone. You know, people say it's luck, uh, but uh, my dad always told me, oh, don't listen to them. He said, he always told me, Luck is where preparation meets opportunity. When I had lived in uh, Lyon, France, for my job at Hewlett-Packard, writing these very dull technical manuals, I was exploring France, and especially Lyon, the gastronomic capital of the world. And I was trying my hand at travel writing because I did want to express you know, what it was like to others. But I was never getting published, so when I came home, there is a annual event, 
gosh, I think I might have even gone to the first annual Book Passage bookstore, which is a beloved independent bookstore there, held a uh, travel writing conference. So I signed up, paid my $300, and I got out of my car. I'd driven, had not motorcycled. And there was this guy in the parking lot on a, a, a touring motorcycle, a BMW. His name was Alan Noren. And we talked uh, for quite a while in the parking lot about touring, et cetera. And it was time to go in. We were rushed. And his presentation was on this new thing called the uh, internet (laughs) and how to write for the internet. His company, O'Reilly and Associates, which is a very large computer publishing company, they wanted travel stories and they wanted more specifically real-time travel reports from the road. The problem was, though, is Alan was having a very difficult time finding travel writers who knew what FTP, HTTP, POP, <laughs> who knew how to, uh, how to hook a com- laptop computer, which were very new then, up to a fax machine, not a um, digital phone system for a hotel, because that would fry your modem, and send actual dispatches back. And so after his presentation, I said, hey, I'm the one. (laughs) I can do this. And my dad's friend had seen this uh, ad for a new motorcycle, the Russian Ural sidecar motorcycle, that these people were thinking about maybe bringing into the U.S. as a novelty bike. I quickly wrote a letter to them and told them that I had just come back from living in Europe and um, I had been asked this question so often by my European friends, what is America like? And I was totally ashamed to say, I didn't know. I know all about California. I know a little bit about North Carolina when I, you know, where I grew up, some of the Pacific Northwest, but I don't know. So when I came home, I vowed to explore my own country by motorcycles, but I wanted to choose a motorcycle, a, a good motorcycle. And I thought Harley, oh, Harley's great, but it's kind of a cliche, you know, okay, go across the, you know, <laughs> the U.S. on a Harley. And uh, when I saw this sidecar bike, I just fell in love with it. The company was had enough foresight to see that it would be a good publicity opportunity. However, (laughs) the guy told me, he he called me, he said, this is the problem. I'm not sure this bike is going to make it across the state, much less the United States. The Ural motorcycle is a bike that the Germans actually originated as a 1938 BMW. Russia got the German BMW factory. Some people say they stole the parts or re-engineered. That's more true for the Chinese Changjiang version. But we're talking about the Ural, uh, the Russian Ural version of the German BMW. In 38, this bike was built. And then in the 41 or two, I'm sure I'll be corrected if I'm wrong, Stalin and um, Hitler were buddies still. They were doing some trades and uh, Germany was kind of done making that model of motorcycle. So they traded with Russia for iron ore and other natural resources. So then um, when Stalin and Hitler were no longer friends, the Germans started bombing the place where the Ural factory was and they moved the factory up to the Ural Mountains because they were making this bike for the war effort. This is the accepted and, you know, true story of the Ural. It's a great bike with uh, inferior materials. 
the electronics were horrible, and the metallurgy was insanely bad. My sponsor, Ural America, the company who originally imported some of these novelty bikes as an experiment, you know, they loved the bike, but we were all horrified at the quality. For instance, the 94 model that I test rode around the United States, the metallurgy was so bad. The aluminum, the fins on the heads were just cracked and and broken. In fact, I uh, crossed a river. I mean, it's just a small creek. And a, a few hours, I believe, the whole right head started lobbing around like a, what, piece of clay and you know it's just because the metal had failed and it was it was broken I wanted to be a travel writer and I I didn't have skills but I had been to that travel writing conference so that taught me how to write and then Alan and O'Reilly were happy and I had a great editor and I had the technical background to deal with the computer and getting the dispatches out and I also had my mechanical background from when I was a kid so you know, when this opportunity came, it was just like, you know, a little perfect storm of, of um, opportunity for me. And I think for Ural and for O'Reilly, it's been wonderful for all of this, all these years later. I did have a mission. My, my mission was to explore, because I was fascinated with Europe and their borders. I lived there in the time when there were borders and you had to get your passport stamped when you went to Germany or Switzerland or Spain or Italy. Now, of course, that's not true. And it fascinated me that in Europe, when you cross the border from France to Germany, people spoke German, they ate different, they looked different, they, they had a different language, you know. I mean, everything was different. And some of that, you could see uh, geographical lines, you know, mountains or a river or something that naturally separated two ecosystems, which provided a barrier between two cultures, maybe created, you know, one tribe on the one hand and one on the other that isolated them. The U.S. is so interesting because we're such a melting pot. And I just love that about living in the U.S. And now here in San Diego, I'm right by the border to Mexico. And it's just fantastic to have these cultures so entwined. I wanted to see how America's borders were the same and different. The borders on the coast, which are full of immigrants, and the borders with Canada and the borders of Mexico. So that was my mission. And my writing mission was to blog about my trip, of course, but to also find out what was going on with, with these borders. I was sad because I did have this limit on my trip. I was exploring borders and I wanted to go further north, but that wasn't in my timeline. I'm so curious. I I just always want to know what's down that road that I'm passing. And oftentimes that curiosity will be strong enough to, uh, to make me turn down that road. And sometimes I have this feeling that I shouldn't turn down the road and I don't, I have also learned to follow, follow that. And, you know, it is so interesting because when you're out in the, you know, in the wild, the metaphorical wild, you know, not in your place, not in your home where you go about your daily business sort of on autopilot, driving to the grocery store and you know, going to the post office where things can take you off guard. I think we just become more like, in the best sense of the word, animals, you know, our, our hackles go up and our 
vision widens and we notice more details and we're aware. And it, it doesn't have to be because we're frightened or always on guard. It's just, we're, we're, I think we're just letting more in somehow. I don't just blunder into known areas where there's a history or current problems. I mean, people say to me now, they're going, oh God, you're going to Mexico. There's all the drug cartels and they're shooting Americans at the borders and, you know, they're kidnapping and all that. I'm like, I'm not going there. I'm going to Baja. You know? In the Bay Area, I lived five miles from Richmond, and across the tracks, there was one of the deadliest communities in the U.S. I mean, you're more likely to get hit by a stray bullet there than assassinated in Mexico by some drug lord. I was more scared there, five miles away from my home in the San Francisco Bay Area, than I ever have been on a trip, ever. I think you can have an adventure in, you know, a week or two. Um, I think people overplan, you know. They have the fancy hotel stops every every night. They know where they're going to be. And, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with sag wagons and backup plans and all that, but that's really not adventure. I was in Morocco a few years ago, and I really didn't have any plans. I was on a, a newer URL, which are wonderful machines, by the way, now. I was invited by a guy at a gas station to come home and meet his family. And that sounds really weird that I did, that I accepted. But like I was saying that um, you, your radar comes out. And I had seen my share of touts, yeah, come to my hotel, you know, do this, do that, you know. And I could tell this guy was sincere. He had literally... He was blown away that a woman was riding a big motorcycle, like this big URL sidecar motorcycle. And he was like, you're so strong. I can't believe it. I want you to meet my mother and my grandmother and my sister and my father. And, you know, so I went to his house and I had the most wonderful afternoon. I got served tea and, you know, goodies and got to talk with his whole family and see the inside of the house and how they lived. And people don't accept invitations enough. Well, first of all, if you're off in a pack, you know, like trip that I did with my friends, you know, with six people, people are not going to invite you home. But with one or two people, even maybe three, it might happen. And I would say, take them up on it and accept your invitations. Keep your radar out, of course, and accept invitations. People love to hear from the outside world. When I was in Africa, I realized that I wasn't a burden on the community that I had just come into. I was the circus come to town. I was a gift from the stars. You know, they would have never seen an inflatable thermorest mattress or a magic stove that lights itself or, you know, I mean, the things that I had and, or even how to shuffle cards. Shuffling cards was something they'd never seen. So accept that you're a gift and accept invitations. Enjoy the really personal interactions that you have. Be open to that. I think you can practice that at home. <laughs> Just go to a different place. Go to dinner by yourself. Um, go to 
you know, a lot of women say, well, I would travel alone, but I hate going to dinner by myself. Well, you know, there are a lot of places where you can go sit at a counter and go to dinner. I sat next to a woman a couple weeks ago at this counter Italian place that we like to go to. And this young gal was by herself and she was chatting with people on both sides of her at that counter and was having a great time. And I thought, wow, you wouldn't have seen that about 10 years ago. It wasn't so common, but I think it is much more now. You know, just go somewhere different for breakfast. Go somewhere by yourself. Go go on an adventure close to home. Go up into the mountains. Go take a dirt bike ride. I think that's really important, even if you're in a couple. And I think it is so important. You know, we all are surrounded by our own little energy ball, right? And we attract different things. And couples merge. There's Sometimes that brings people in and sometimes it keeps them out. So I think it's important to to stay autonomous and be self-sufficient. Well, I want to take a bunch of women on a tour to um, Baja. And I actually had one woman say, well, if there's no guys along, who's going to fix the bikes if, they, if something happens? And I went, no, no. I think of the women who volunteered to go on the first trip. I mean, three of us are really good, really good mechanics. <laughs> so I thought it was just very weird, you know. You can always find me at CarlaKing.com. I have a newsletter sign up. I encourage people to sign up for the email news. You can select my motorcycle news, my travel writing news, my self-publishing news. Um, so do that at, at CarlaKing.com. Yeah, it's a really intimate list. I feel like I'm, you know, when I send out a newsletter, I'm always talking to friends. This is Carla King, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. And you can find out more about Carla King at CarlaKing.com. Coming up next, we have Graham Field talking about his new book. That's right, he's got two books out, and he's got a third one all ready to go to press. Graham, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks for having me back on again, Jim. And of course, the reason I wanted you on here is because I know that you finished that book as you were vacationing down in Mexico. You said you were working, but I, I really don't believe that. <laughs> you were vacationing down in Mexico, probably wrote your last few lines of the book. But in any case, you finished your book. You, you've got this thing ready to go. I mean, we're very close to seeing your third book. It is so close. It's really exciting. When you actually see a cover and when you see it in typeset, although I haven't seen it in typeset physically in a book yet, I've seen it sort of in a PDF file. And yeah, now it's not a Word document anymore. Now it's a copy edited, proofread typeset book that's ready to be printed. So yeah, it's pretty exciting. And and just for the record, it was hard work in Mexico. It was just a different background beyond my computer screen. It was palm trees instead of a radiator. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll just, I'll take your word for that, Graham. <laughs> but so can you tell us, without giving away the whole thing, can you tell us, just give us a little insight of what this third book is about? Okay, well, 
originally I wanted to call it the motorcycle dairies milking the success of the first two books and I was really strongly advised by people whose names you'd know not to do that and because what it was going to be was a little filler book it was just gonna be a cheap little book but what I did was I went into my diaries and it, it it's three different trips they all started in Colorado because that's where I sort of lived my other life when I screwed up over here and have to run off away so one was in 2001 which was 10 states in 14 days and that was on a Yamaha Venture of all bikes the next was in 2007 which was from Colorado up to the Alaskan Arctic Circle and back and that was about 11,000 miles and that was over six weeks and the third trip was in 2012 and that was from Colorado down to Mexico and back which was I don't know about 9,000 miles and so it's called Different Natures, and it's the different natures of the various environments that I went through, from frozen tundra to desert to ocean to high altitude plateaus and stuff. But it's also the different natures of growing older and more experienced, because I was a much younger idiot back then, and I inevitably gained experience. And so it also answers questions. Between the other two books, there are sort of references back to various trips. So it fills in the spaces between the other two books as well. So, um, yeah, in a nutshell, that's kind of what the book is about, three different journeys. Well, I understand from what I've seen on the Internet that we can actually go and pre-order the book. Now, I know we don't have a lot of time yet uh, to do this. I think you've only got another week and a half or something like that. Tell us about that. Right. Well, what I decided to do was do a crowdfunding exercise. I've seen people do it before and I looked into it. And this crowdfunding thing is massive now. If you've got an idea, you pitch your idea, people invest in it. That's the idea. However, mine isn't like that because it's not an idea. It's a physical thing. And I'm using it to pre-order my book. And the book is nearly ready. In fact, I'm going to get the trial copy back from the printers probably tomorrow. All I've got to do is check everything's okay, that the maps aren't upside down, that the photos are the right definition. Then I order the print run. So all people are doing is pre-ordering the book. Uh, They're not having to pledge money. Some people have, which is lovely. And I don't know why they would. But that I'm not expecting that. It's just a way of accumulating some money by pre-ordering so that I can pay for the print run. It, the thing is, on the link, it doesn't look like that from the actual link. As soon as you click on it, there's a little video of me explaining what you get. There's a whole synopsis of what the book's about. There's a bunch of pictures. There's everything you need to know. Uh, so that's probably the, the weak point of using a crowdfunding thing. But on the right-hand side of, of this page of their website is what they call perks. And they're incentives for you to invest if it were an idea. But what I'm using the perks for is there's different ways of ordering the other books. So regardless of where you are in the world, you can order just pre-order just Eureka or you can order other books as well. And the postage is minimal. And right there, now, there is nowhere else on the planet, not Amazon, not anywhere, where you can get a better deal on the books than right here because it's just me utilising the stock I've got to try and generate some money to pay for the printing. So there's nothing to lose. You're just ordering books. And uh, that's all there is to it, really. 
Yeah, that's really great because, like you say, normally what you're looking for when you're doing this sort of crowdfunding is for people to give you money. But here, they're not doing anything like that. They're just buying a book in advance. And this is really cool because they get one of the first books out. I mean, this is really neat. And this isn't your first book. This is your third book. So I think it's something pretty exciting that people will want to jump in on. What's the website? How do they find out about this? Well, probably the easiest way is my website, which is grahamfield.co.uk. On that, one of the tabs is Different Natures. That's what the news book's called, Different Natures. If you go on there, straight away it will tell you a little bit about the book. You can see the maps and the routes I've done, which basically covers, like I said, from the Alaskan Arctic Circle all the way down to below the Tropic of Cancer in Mexico. But on there is a link. So on there you can go to the Indiegogo website where you will see what this crowdfunding thing is all about. And it's doing really well. It, as I'm talking to you now, it's only been going for a week and I just passed the 60% mark, which is huge. I mean... Yeah, I know I saw that. I, and I was just so impressed that, wow, that's amazing. That that shows the power of the internet. You know, people see something good and they're rushing out to grab it. I think it shows the power of my books, Jim. It's nothing to do with the internet. <laughs> oh, no, that's what I meant. Did I say internet? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's wonderful that people, I mean, and, and as it says there, you know, it was three years ago when In Search of Greener Grass came out. No one knew who the hell I was and nobody, there was no reason why anybody should. And now people have been asking me in advance, you know, when's the new book? coming out and they're putting their money where their mouths are they're actually so keen to get it that they're pre-ordering which is a wonderful position to be in i mean short of having a, a publisher in advance this is pretty much the next next best thing so uh, so yeah 60 percent the way there and it will end i don't we have easter monday here because we have a, a four-day easter holiday i don't know if you have easter monday or whether you just have good friday but easter monday is when the campaign ends and that's when i have to reach my target by so um that's that's what's keeping me awake and, and doing all the social networking and just and just trying to get the word out really because like I say it's a good deal it's it's certainly in the UK it's free postage overseas it's still very cheap postage and as particularly you can get all three books for thirty pounds at the moment no, no postage I don't sell them for that it shows that is a good deal. <laughs> So Easter Monday is the 6th, and uh, but even after that, someone listening to this can still go to your website and get the book, right? I always sell books through my website, and the, the great thing about being through the website is you're going to get it signed, and you're going to get a free sticker as well, and you get that personal touch. Uh, with Amazon, yeah, sure, if you're signed up for Amazon Prime, you might get it a little bit cheaper, but it's just going to be anonymous. At least you know it's going straight to the author, and it's going to be a little bit more personal. So if you wanted to get it as a present, for example, you've got something signed and, and personalized so the website is for, not just for me but for any author go to their website and buy their product or, or an artist or anything and, and cut out the middleman but they'll always be available for the website certainly yeah so go to the website gramfield.co.uk and uh, get in there on, on the first of the book three which is different natures and we're a big fan here at adventure ride radio of gramfield so you will not go wrong with these books <laughs> Thanks very much for coming on and telling us about it, Graham. And, and after, when it comes out, once I've read a copy, we're going to have to get you back on the show. Okay, look forward to coming back, Jim. Yeah.
Well, if you live in the Northern Hemisphere and have been suffering from snowfalls all winter, you got to be getting pretty excited now because spring has sprung and pretty soon you're going to be out there riding your bike. And of course, with riding your bike comes all those maintenance things that we have to do, which are all part of the fun. And the subject came up the other day and we got talking about chain adjustment and it brought me back to that chain adjustment episode we ran last year with Grant Johnson. So we decided we're going to run that again for you to get your season started off right. So here's Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited on adjusting your chain. Are you tired of getting on your knees with your tape measure to measure the slack in your chain? Well, get rid of it, because after today, you don't need it. Grant's going to walk you through a method to set up your chain adjustment, so all you have to do is lift it up with your finger or push it up with your finger, and you're going to know dead on whether it's too loose or too tight. Hi, Grant. Welcome back once again. Yeah, it's great to be back here again. Well, this week we're talking about chain adjustment, and it seems to be one of those misunderstood things and uh, another thing that's hotly debated as well. Let's start with talking about why a chain needs to be adjusted. The biggest problem is that the chain itself is hundreds of bushings. The average chain is around 110 links. Every one of those links is a bushing, and it doesn't take much wear on each individual one to uh, equate to a result of a stretched chain. So the chain gets longer and longer and longer as it wears. That's normal. Modern chains are pretty good. They're well lubricated and they last pretty well, but they still do stretch. Second problem is the swing arm. The way it works, it moves up and down and changes the length of the chain from the sprocket to the rear wheel. So you get constantly changing lengths and stresses, and if it's not adjusted properly, the chain can get yanked and stretched pretty hard, and that wears it very fast. So when we're setting it up, what we're really doing is we're setting up clearances or setting up an allowance for that swing arm, right? And, and as it wears, we're adjusting for that chain getting longer, so to speak. That's right, yeah. The chain and the sprockets also wear as well. The sprockets don't wear at quite the same rate, and if you replace your chain once a week, you'll find that the sprockets will last almost forever. It's the chain actually getting longer and the sprockets not changing the distance between the tooth that causes wear on the sprockets. Now, just as not all motorcycles are created equally, all motorcycles will have different specifications for the slack in their chain. Now, I did recently read one article that gave a standard amount of slack for all motorcycles of, I think it was 15 to 25 millimeters, but that can't be right, can it? No, it can't. Uh, what is correct about that statement is that if you have a rigid suspension system where the rear wheel doesn't move up and down so that the chain distances between the two sprockets never changes half an inch or 15 to 25 millimeters, I wouldn't, I would actually 25 millimeters is pushing, I'd say 15 to 20, is correct. The correct slack for a fixed position chain is 15 to 20 millimeters, half an inch, three quarters of an inch. That's correct. But for every motorcycle, it's absolutely wrong. There is no motorcycle that that is perfectly correct for, unless you do it at the point where the front sprocket, the swing arm pivot, and the rear axle are in a dead straight line. And that's where people go wrong. If you check the chain adjustment, it's half an inch, 15 millimeters. As it's sitting there, that's great, except that it's not, because as soon as you push down on the suspension, the rear wheel actually moves farther away from the front sprocket, which takes up all of that slack. So you can have a bike that's got lots of rear suspension travel, and at a relaxed position, you've got 15 millimeters of play. Wonderful. Push down on the suspension, and it's tight as a bowstring. And you've just destroyed your chain and possibly the front uh, transmission sprocket bearing. 
And that's really expensive because you got to take the motor apart to do that. And what if we're running it too loose? Too loose is not as big a problem as running it too tight. Running it too tight is absolutely a no-no. Too loose, well, if it's a little loose, it's going to flap around. It's going to hit things and it's going to catch and wear. But it's not fatal in any way. It's just too loose and it can cause wear marks on various things. I mean, if it's dragging on the ground, we have a different problem. And you'll find that the bike has more snatch. In other words, you shut the throttle off and there's a big lurch as the chain catches up. So you don't want it loose because that makes the bike unpleasant to ride. But it's much better to have it loose than tight. If in doubt, go loose. And just to be clear, everyone realizes if it's really loose and it comes off, that could be obviously something very, very serious. Oh, yes. that's yeah. You could lock up the front sprocket. You could lock up the rear sprocket. You can lock up the whole wheel. That can get really ugly. Don't ask me how I know. Which begs the question, why don't manufacturers put the, the uh, drive sprocket in line? I think there's one. Husqvarna, I think, does it on some of their bikes. If not all of them, I'm not sure. Um, but has, has it lined yeah. up with the pivot for the swing arm? Why wouldn't they all do that? It's really hard, technically very difficult. You have to run the swing arm inside the motor and run a shaft inside the swing arm pivot. And that, it's technically very complex. And you can do it on a dirt bike. Doing it on a street bike, I wouldn't even want to think of the difficulties in doing it. For one thing, getting the engine and everything positioned and designed in such a way that you can get that transmission shaft in exactly the right spot is very difficult. You start looking at a lot of bikes and you'll find that there's a lot of variance in exactly where that transmission sprocket is. Okay, so let's look at the actual procedure then. If someone's reading their manual, it'll tell them how much chain deflection that they should have. But in the manuals, I find that there, there's real vague references to how you're supposed to measure this. Some say on the side stand, some say on the center stand. Well, well, that's two different animals right there. Can you run through the procedure now of how you think we should be setting up our chain? Okay, the, the manual, if it's clear enough on how it's written and sometimes they are and sometimes they're not, it is correct for that bike. I mean, the manufacturers, I mean, you always have to remember, they're not stupid. They designed a whole motorcycle, so surely they can tell you how to adjust your chain correctly. And in theory, it is roughly correct. However, if you've changed shocks, if you've got a set, pair, set of saddlebags with a bunch of stuff in them, um, all kinds of variances can mean that the factory recommendation isn't correct. And it's very often... Where you run into trouble is you check it on the side stand, for instance, and you do a check and, yep, you got your 15 millimeters, that's lovely. But if you put your bike up on a center stand and spin the rear wheel, you'll find as you check the chain tension as the wheel spins, that chain tension varies from maybe very tight to extremely loose if the chain is worn unevenly. And chains commonly do. It's not unusual for that. Uh, when the chain's brand new, it should be exactly even all the way around as you spin the wheel. If it's not, that means that one of your sprockets is out of round, and that you want to get sorted quickly, because that can cause you lots of grief down the road. So if you've got the bike on the center stand and you spin the wheel, you first of all want to check for the tightest point in the chain travel, and that's where you would check the chain slack, not at the loosest point, at the tightest point. Remember, tight is bad, loose is okay. Start with that. So we get the bike up into position. We roll the wheel around, and uh, we find that spot where the where the chain is clearly the tightest. That's our measuring point. That's where you start. Yes, correct. From there, the trick is, is the wheel in alignment with the rest of the bike? In other words, does the front wheel lead the rear wheel? Is the rear wheel straight in relation to the front wheel? And I know the first reaction everybody's thinking is, well, yeah, but the front wheel turns. 
Well, not when you're driving down the road. The front wheel is straight and the rear wheel should be exactly in line. There's a lot of methods for making sure the rear wheel is in alignment. And the first one you're going to think of is, oh, well, there's marks on the swing arm. Well, yes, there are. However, remember that when you look at your swing arm, you'll see that it's welded up from a bunch of components and it's mounted into a pivot, which is made up of a bunch of components and the whole frame and everything is a whole bunch of pieces welded up theoretically perfectly. We all know what happened to theory. It just doesn't happen. So hopefully it's pretty good, but if it's not, and I've seen a lot of bikes that can be as much out as one whole notch on the adjustment marks. So you need to align the rear wheel right up front. That's the first thing you want to do. Is the rear wheel aligned with the front and do the marks coincide with that alignment? You can go onto the internet and you'll see there's ways of doing it with boards and string and all the rest of it. But I've always found that you can actually do it by eye. Get down on your hands and knees behind the bike at 90 degrees to the bike. So you've got your head on your side looking down from the rear wheel to the front. And if you look along the rear wheel, you'll see that the front edge of the tire and the rear edge of the tire make a line. And then you do it on both sides of the wheel, left side, right side, and you'll either be able to see the front wheel from one of them or not. And if you can't see the front wheel at all from either, it's probably pretty straight. And if you move your head maybe an inch out of alignment so that you can see just, just barely see the front wheel, you'll see the amount that you're offset and it should be the same on both sides because the rear wheel is always fatter than the front. So have a play with that and you'll see what I mean. It's, it's fairly obvious once you get down there and start looking. Just sight from the front edge of the rear wheel to the rear edge of the rear wheel down to the front on both sides of the bike and see if it looks straight in relation to the front wheel. What about using the chain for the same thing, looking along the chain lane? Again, you're assuming that everything is aligned perfectly that the rear wheel is, in, is dead center in the swing arm, which is dead center in relation to the engine. And you're also trying to look down a chain, which is really difficult to see a very, very slight curve in it. Yeah, if it's really out, you can see it. But if it's a tiny, tiny bit out, boy, you've got to have better eyes than I do to see it. Okay. So once we get it set up, we figure that we've got the wheel lined. Now we're going to have to make some sort of uh, markings on this now to override the factory ones. Correct. I always pick one side or the other. It doesn't really matter which and say, right, that's the correct side. Now take a chisel and put a whack on the other side. And that's your amount out from one notch to the other. Do it in the chain adjuster itself, not on the swing arm. Do it on the adjuster because each adjuster only has one mark on it. So make a new mark in the adjuster and you're good to go. How often do you find this, Grant? Is, is almost every bike out? No, I would say probably, well, I would used to say that it was about 80 or 90%. Today, it's more like 10 or 20%. So it's, it's gotten better. Yeah, the tolerances have tightened up a lot. When the Japanese bikes first came in, the tolerances were, well, <laughs> generous to say the least. Mm -hmm. um, and old British bikes were a joke. But manufacturing tolerances have tightened up a lot in the last 30, 40 years. So it's not bad, but it's a good thing to check. And then you know it's straight. If nothing else, it's good peace of mind. Okay, so we've got our spot where the chain is the tightest. We've got our rear wheel straight. Where do we go from here? Next thing is to loosen the axle and make it good and loose. Loosen the chain adjusters a bit and then give the rear wheel a good kick forward. Hang on to the back of the seat or something so that you don't kick the bike right off the center stand. 
I've seen that done. Now we've got the wheel well forward. And from now, what we're going to do is snug up the axle so that it's snug. But if you turn the chain adjusters, the wheel moves relatively easily. So what we're doing by doing that is taking up the slack in the whole system. So as you tighten the adjusters and pull the wheel back, there is no slack. If you're sloppy about it and the axle is loose and you just pull the adjusters back to about the right spot and then just tighten the axle, first thing you do is you hit the throttle and the chain pulls hard on the rear wheel and everything moves so that there's no slack. So we're going to eliminate that slack in the beginning. So we're pulling back on the axle adjusting tensioners and keep checking your tight spot on the chain until you've got it to where you think it's perfect. So you've now got the chain tension correct. You've taken up all the slack because you're pulling the wheel back on the tensioner. So there's no play in the system. And this one gets tricky. A lot of people at this point just tighten the axle. And an easy way to do it is just to put a wrench on it and pull backwards because you're behind the bike. By pulling backwards, you're now pulling on the axle and rotating the wheel in the system and you've introduced some more play. All wrong. So what you want to do is first of all, with a drum brake, put the drum brake on. If you've got a disc brake, it doesn't matter. But if you've got a drum brake, put the brake on and that will center the brake shoes in the wheel so that you have both shoes contacting the wheel at exactly the same time. So it gives you better, solider braking and it locks the wheel in place. Put the wrench on the axle and pull it towards the front of the bike, not to the back, to the front of the bike. And again, you're eliminating and helping eliminate more slack in the whole system so that when you hit the throttle, the wheel doesn't move because you've taken up all the slack. Make sure it's good and tight. That's it. It's not that hard. There's nothing really complicated about it once you understand the basic principles. And I would say the the things to think about are the chain doesn't stretch evenly. Your wheel may not be dead straight. Let's get that straight. And then let's get out all the possible slack in the wheel so that the system doesn't move as soon as you hit the throttle. And finally, on the drum brakes, get that brake working to its best ability by centering it and locking it up. So when we're talking about the chain adjustment, we're saying looser is better than being too tight. Absolutely. Let's say in, on my bike, for instance, the, the range is 35 to 45 millimeters. What should I be aiming for? Should I be aiming at the high side and going for that 45 millimeter deflection all the time? Once you get good at it, you can aim for right on. It just takes a little bit of practice to get the feel of it and how you make everything work and just making sure it's aligned. I would go, if your spec is, say, 15 to 25, which I think is a very reasonable spec, I would aim for 20 to 25, just a touch on the loose side. Of course, make sure you've lubricated the chain before you start all of this. And how often afterwards are we checking the adjustment? Depends on the bike. I mean, it used to be that we would literally check the chain adjustment every day before you go for a ride. Today, you can easily go a week or two, depending on how far you're riding. So every 500 to 1,000 miles or 1,500 kilometers, something like that, is probably quite reasonable to check it but just do check it and make sure you're doing it the same way and it could also be terrain right if we're riding a lot of dirt stuff or even some off-road stuff then we might want to check more often rather than just following much the mileage. more often yeah much more often 
Okay, so we've learned to adjust the chain properly using the manufacturer's specifications. But as I would mentioned earlier, some of the manufacturer's instructions can be fairly vague, or as you'd mentioned, if we changed the suspension or we had added weight to it, we've thrown everything out. We need to get back to square one. How do we go back to ground zero and make sure we have the right measurement right from the very start? How do we establish a baseline to measure our chain adjustment from to make sure we are dead on accurate? Okay, the easy way, ha, is to have a very large friend <laughs> who, when the bike is off the stand, he either sits or leans on the back end of the bike, maybe onto a rack, and pushes until you're satisfied with a ruler, use a measuring stick, uh, yardstick's great, and make sure that the front sprocket, swing arm pivot, and rear axle are dead straight. We're talking about lining up the counter shaft, the swing arm, and the axle all together so that it's at the point where the, the axle itself is the farthest it ever gets in the arc. If you think of the way the swing arm moves, it's the farthest it ever gets from the counter shaft. And then at that point, you still have to roll it around until you find the tight spot in the chain. Then you're ready to measure your deflection. You may have to take off a front cover in order to get access to see the front sprocket, but make sure you can do that. The harder way, if you don't have a very large friend, is to take off the shock or shocks and lift it up with a strap. If your suspension is fairly soft and it's not too far, you can put a strap around a rack and through the wheel and tighten the strap up really tight, you know, a ratchet strap of some kind, until the suspension is adequately compressed so that you get that straight line. Then you can check your chain adjustment and make sure it's correct. And with getting those pivots lined up and your axle lined up with your counter shaft on your transmission, you're saying that's the 15 to 25 millimeter deflection that you would want because you wouldn't necessarily go by your manufacturer's um, specifications at that point, would you? No, absolutely not. The manufacturer's specification is assuming the bike is on the stand and with everything dangling down. You'll find that always the rear wheel axle is below the, the straight line that the front sprocket and the swing arm pivot make. So it's the chain is looser by quite a bit at that point. Uh, a dirt bike, it could be 50 millimeters play at that point quite easily in order to make sure that when the suspension compresses at that tight point, you still have 15 to 25 millimeters. Okay, so clearly we don't want to take the big guy everywhere we go, and we don't want to ratchet it down everywhere we are to check our chain adjustment and make sure it's correct. How do we set up that reference point so that we don't have to go through this, so we can check it without using a measuring tape or a yardstick or anything? First off, get it right, and then put the bike in the normal position, either side stand or center stand, where you would want to check the chain. And now, what is the play? How much play have you got? I really like it when you can grab the chain and push up and your finger lines up with something like a chain guard, for instance, or maybe the chain just touches the swing arm or some other component of the system. Then you've got a mark. Um, on my last bike with the chain, all I had to do is pull up on the chain and it was just in line with the bottom of the um, protector for the chain. Perfect. It was dead easy. Now that happened to be about 45 millimeters of play because it was a dirt bike. No problem. Now I know that I want 45 millimeters of play and a quick pull in the tight spot and it aligns with that particular spot on my swing arm system and I'm done. That's it. I don't have to mess around. 
Okay, so this is great. I mean, it makes it very easy. Basically, what we're doing is we're following your steps. We're making sure we've got the correct adjustment right off the bat. We've standardized everything. We know the chain's set up right. Then you flop the bike onto the side stand, and you look at it sitting there, and you reach down and with your finger and lift it up to a point. Maybe slide your finger along. Yeah, you're going to get a little greasy, but you'll live. You slide your finger along until a point where you can get it where your finger is pushing the chain up, and it just contacts the swing arm. And then look up from your finger and see what mark is there. Maybe even have to put a little tiny mark there, a bit of paint or something like that. And you'll know, no matter what, no matter where you stop, if you pick up the chain with your finger and just lift it up to the swing arm and it touches the swing arm there, you know that it's adjusted properly. No measuring, no messing around, no lining other things up. You can do a quick check in the parking lot there. Um, likely, if you've done it right to begin with, I mean, you're not going to find that it's too tight. But you can certainly check and see if it's loosened off too much. But remember that even when we're using this method, we still want to roll around until we get the chain to the tightest spot, right? I mean, that's always, that's a standard thing no matter what you do. You always got to make sure that chain is at its tightest point for you to check to make sure the deflection is correct. But that's great. So we just use our finger and a little mark on the swing arm. Boom, done. Yeah, yeah, it's dead easy. You know, you may have to have it so that you pull down on the top of this chain, but it's better to do it on the bottom. Whatever works, whatever gives you a system, push up on the chain, put two fingers in between the chain and swing arm, something, anything that's easily repeatable and consistent. Makes life a lot easier. Following your instructions, Grant, it takes something that can be seemingly complicated and really make it quite simple. Once you've got your reference point, it's dead easy. Absolutely. That's it. You got it. Good to go. We've, now we know how to adjust the chain. We've got our chain adjusted upright. What about wear? How do we check the chain and how do we check our sprockets for wear? And when do we replace it? That's pretty straightforward. If you go to the back of the bike, the center of the sprocket at the back, so you've got the sprocket is however tall, you're going to exactly the farthest point of the sprocket at the back of the bike, pull the chain off the sprocket. If the chain lifts about half the height of a tooth, it's past worn out. You should be a little less than half worn out before you replace the chain. And then you look at the sprocket, and if you can see any sign of hooking, like each tooth has a profile, and the profile should be exactly the same on both sides of every tooth. If you can see any, and I mean any sign that it's not identical, then the sprocket is starting to hook and it's worn out, replace it. Absolutely never use a sprocket that's got any sign of hooking whatsoever with a new chain because you will destroy the chain in no time. Yeah, I really like that way of checking for Warren chain. I know there's other ways to measure between links, but that gets very complicated. It's a oh, big yeah. procedure. Nobody's going to do that. No, no. Yeah, it's way too hard. Just grab the chain, pull it back, and when it's brand new, you can hardly lift it at all. And as it wears, you'll see it's starting to get loose, and yeah, I can lift it off. By the time it gets halfway, you've done in your complete chain and sprockets. They're all finished. You have to replace the whole set. Depends on your budget how soon you do it. Do you recommend changing the sprockets every time you change the chain? No, I recommend changing the chain more often. You can get more life out of the whole system than if you replace the chain a little early than if you replace it later. If you replace the chain just a little bit early before it's gone, like when it's quarter to a third of a tooth at most, and there's still no sign of hooking in the sprocket, replace the chain and you're ready to go. And then you'll get some more life out of the sprockets because this chain of sprocket yeah. set can be quite expensive on some of the bikes. So it's definitely worthwhile doing. Yeah, for sure. The sprockets are almost the price of a chain. So you can mm -hmm. go through, if you can get two chain and one set of sprockets, then you've done pretty good. 
Okay, Grant, every modern chain nowadays has an O-ring or an X-ring in it that seals the lubricant inside the roller, and it's supposed to be sealed for life. And if that's the case, if that lubricant is in there, permanently lubricating the chain for life, why are we oiling the outside of the modern chain? Uh, modern chains with O-rings or X-rings or whatever they've got are internally lubricated. The lubricant you're putting on is not lubricating the bushing inside the chain. It's Number one, it's preventing rust. And number two, it's providing a little bit of lubrication for those O-rings from the outside so they're not running dry. And it's allowing a little bit of lubrication between the plates. So as it rotates around the sprocket, there's a little bit of lube there. And the oil provides a cushioning effect on the sprocket tooth when the chain roller hits it. So rather than metal to metal, you've got a little bit of oil in between. Kind of same thing as principle is inside your engine. A little bit of lubricant makes a big difference. Having said that, if you're riding off-road, especially in sand, a dry chain is good because the lubricant makes a lovely grinding paste mixed with fine powdered sand. It wears out your chain in no time. So for sand, dry. For dirt, on average, mud and stuff like that, a little bit of lube, but not a lot. For street bikes, keep it wet. You should always be looking a little bit damp. Things like the Scott chain oiler, for instance, are great because they drip a special chain lube steadily, constantly, and your chain is always lubricated and it never goes dry. One thing I should mention, at the end of a ride, lubricate your chain. Take your helmet off, lube your chain. Don't put the chain lube on before you go for a ride. At the end of a ride, your chain is nice and warm. You spray the lube on, it soaks in, it dries. The, the uh, solvent that's the carrier for the lubricant evaporates. And next morning, there's nothing to fling off. If you lube the chain cold and then immediately go for a ride, 90% of that lube gets flung off anyway, so it's kind of pointless. Well, there you have it. You've got your chain set up for the season. You've got your method down pat, and there is no more crawling around and messing with your chain. It's as simple as, well, a shaft drive. I'm going to give you a little bit of inside information. The next few episodes coming up are jam-packed. I mean, we've got a suspension episode. we got another one where we're talking about off-road training schools. we got some great guests coming up. There's a lot of things in the works here, so keep your ear tuned. You can also drop by our website and click on the donate button. Hey, we got a lot of people following us on Facebook now, and that's really great because it's a great way to disseminate what's going on with the show. So make sure you go over to Facebook, like our page, Adventure Rider Radio, and that way you can keep track of what's coming up, the latest happenings, and all the other silly things that we happen to post on there. We've also got a new program now where you can click on a button and call in and leave your recorded message, and that's really cool. We're going to work that into shows coming up, so that's also going to be on Facebook. And don't forget to go by Graham Field's website and pre-order his book. I tell you, it's about the best deal that you're going to find right now as far as adventure motorcycle books. Go on over there, make your pre-order, and help him get that third book in print for all of us. It's grahamfield.co.uk. I'm Jim Martin, and now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. This is Joe Rust, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 